One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review, a new podcast from the FT exclusively for you, our subscribers. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Columnist a role that often takes me abroad for conversations with some of the people, diplomats, policymakers, writers, who are shaping the global discussion. As a columnist for the paper, most of my discussions are off the record, and I then use them as background for my columns. But with this show, I'll be getting more of my contacts to go on the record, so that listeners and subscribers can join the conversation. I made a call. The call was perfect. Uh, when the whistleblower reported it, he made it sound terrible. And then you had Adam Schiff, who, even worse, made up my words, which I think is just a horrible thing. I've never even think, seen a thing like that. Adam Schiff, representative, congressman, made up what I said. Despite the fact that I followed the exact same process as my predecessors in calling a Queen's speech, The Supreme Court was asked to intervene in this process for the first time ever, and it is absolutely no disrespect to the judiciary to say I think the court was wrong to pronounce on what is essentially a political question. You heard, of course, the voices of US President Donald Trump and British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Today, I'm sharing a discussion I had recently with two experts and friends on the similarities between the Brexit and Trump phenomena, and what it might mean for the world. My two guests are, I think, perfectly placed to discuss the parallels, because they're both American foreign policy analysts, now based in London. Cory Shackey is deputy head of the International Institute for Strategic Studies, and is a Republican who once worked as director for defence strategy in the Bush White House. Jeremy Shapiro comes from the other side of the political divide. He worked for the Obama administration in the policy planning staff at the State Department, and he's now research director of the European Council on Foreign Relations. Since my conversation with Jeremy and Corrie, news broke that Donald Trump's facing an impeachment probe, and Britain's Supreme Court ruled that Boris Johnson acted illegally by attempting to shut down Parliament in the final days of the Brexit negotiations. So against this fresh information, what Corrie and Jeremy said seems more pertinent than ever, and even oddly prescient. I sometimes feel in discussions of the Trump administration, it's quite hard to keep the sort of liberal levels of hysteria up because it's it's been going on for quite a long time now. Do, does it feel more normal or are you just as alarmed as you were from a democratic point of view at the beginning? No, I'm uh, probably more alarmed. Uh, I, I was very, very alarmed from the first day, but my alarm has grown because we've seen The president, who has not, in terms of his temperament and uh, views, changed at all, slowly become a little bit more in control of his own government as he sort of kicked the grown-ups out of the room and brought in progressively more sycophantic advisors. Um, We're seeing that that he's increasingly less checked and the guardrails are going away. And I think that that's incredibly frightening, particularly uh, when crises arise, as they have recently. 
And Cory, I mean, you come from the Republican Party, but I, th- I would guess, I don't know if you ever signed a Never Trump letter, but he's not your... Signed them all. You signed them all, right. Okay. <laughs> and I'm serenely unrepentant of those views. And with the passage of time, do you feel, as Jeremy does, that it's actually getting more alarming? I do think the president's behavior is getting more alarming, but I think I'm slightly more confident than Jeremy that uh, it's not having that much effect. So the president's rallies are getting more frequent. His speeches at rallies are getting longer. His willingness to personally endanger individual journalists, as well as to encourage violence against journalists and his political opponents, all of that, the president's, <laughs> that, that worse. <laughs> all of that is getting worse. And I agree with Jeremy's assessment that the president has culled the herd of the cabinet and his advisors down to people who will enact the president's policies. I mean, remember Rex Tillerson saying that he'd just shake his head at the number of times the president asked him to do things that were illegal? And I think the president now has a team in place that will work assiduously to find policy and legal levers to do what the president wants. Why I am slightly, (laughs) I'm I'm headed there now. Uh, A couple of things. First, you know, within legal boundary and constitutional boundaries, the president's actually entitled to be surrounded by a cabinet and a policy team that want to do and are trying to do what he was elected to do. And so the solution to that is elections. The second thing is I'm actually enormously heartened by how well the guardrails have held, right? Despite efforts by the president to not just uh, destroy the share price of the New York Times and defame it and other newspapers like the Washington Post, the president's effort to personally go after Jeff Bezos, the owner of the Washington Post, and endangering individual journalists, journalism in America is robust and dynamic and going square after the president. So the ineffectualness of what the president of the president's approach and the Chicago Council on Global Affairs just came out with their survey of American public attitudes and on the president's three signature policies, trade, immigration and alliances, the American public's attitudes have moved dramatically in opposition to the president's. So weirdly, if this continues, and crucially, if the president isn't reelected, I think it may turn out that Donald Trump was good for democracy in America by reinvigorating all of our education about the emoluments clause and <laughs> our belief in the importance of voting and civil society balancing government action. I think all of those things have been invigorated by the dangers the president so it's poses. It's like a sort of virus that's promoted the antibodies. I think that's exactly <laughs> right. Our immune system's gotten stronger. Okay. Coming back then to the Brexit parallel, I mean, something you said, Corey, uh, struck me when you said, well, Trump's been testing the boundaries of the law and so on. And I must say, obviously, as a Brit who goes to America quite a lot, the comparisons between what's happening here and what's happening there have always been at the forefront of my mind. And until recently, I was relatively complacent about Britain. I thought that, you know, Brexit would do a lot more damage to our economy than possibly anything that, you know, America's a bigger, less vulnerable place. But that the norms of politics were more firmly in place here, that we didn't have a kind of a crazy man figure like Trump. 
But now with the Johnson administration, although Johnson's personal style is more sort of civil than Trump's, obviously he is testing the boundaries of the law. So, Jeremy, do you see parallels between the Brexit process and the Trump process now? Yeah, I mean, particularly since Boris Johnson has taken over the government, I think what you see in the way that Trump has taken the Republican Party is that he's made it into an extremist party. He's created a party which isn't interested in the moderate center, which has a sort of ideological litmus test to it, and which excites itself and tries to win elections by demonizing its opponents and winning on turnout, not on convincing the middle or the opposition. And that is the Trump style that most presidents have not had. Most presidents, when they're elected, move to the center. And I think you saw something, I'm not sure that Boris Johnson conceived of it this way, but you saw that that's exactly what he has done in much shorter order to the Tory party since he took over. He has, by expelling the moderates, by doubling down on a very divisive Brexit policy, which plays to uh, a base by eliminating from the conservative party the balance in their approach to things like Brexit and a bunch of other policies. He's really creating a conservative party which will have to win from its base, which will have to double down and be extremist and get rid of any sort of non-conforming viewpoint. That's a very different approach for the conservative party has ever had. And it looks kind of Republican. It looks Trumpian Republican. Yeah. And I'll bring you in in a second, Corey. But to me, a couple of parallels of the way in which Britain is looking a bit more American is suddenly the courts matter in a way. I mean, you know, everyone in America is politically aware, knows who the Supreme Court justices are, what their political dispositions are. Nobody in Britain could name a Supreme Court justice, but suddenly our politics is in the Supreme Court and that matters. And also the extent to which, I mean, maybe this was happening before Boris Johnson came in anyway, this is becoming not a policy issue, but a cultural war issue in which people define themselves by where they stand on Brexit as in a way maybe they around Donald Trump. But Corey, what do you think on this issue? I agree wholeheartedly with everything Jeremy said and everything you just did. The culture war aspect of it, the politics of energizing a base. The only thing I would say is that neither of these have been tested by elections, right? Johnson's approach hasn't been tested by trying to actually hold the government. And President Trump hasn't run for re-election, but to the extent it's been tested in the 2018 congressional midterm election, it wasn't a victory for the president. The Democrats picked up a lot of seats and they picked them up with the kind of moderate standard bearers who Republicans would vote for. Mm. Although I guess that then raises the question of the direction of the Democratic Party and whether Trump can win again. I guess his dream would be that the Democrats pick a sort of Jeremy Corbyn figure, if you like, a far left figure sort of somebody like Sanders or even Warren. Yes, it's certainly true that you should never underestimate the Democratic Party's ability to blow a good opportunity. But it's a pretty wide opportunity at the moment. Mm -hmm. I actually think Warren probably could defeat the president because she has two things going for her. First, I think she's unlikely to feel intimidated by the president and has clearly thought about how she's going to handle that. And her strategy is detailed policy proposals on everything from how to reform the State Department to trade policy. Oh, it warms the cockles of my (laughs) (laughs) But she is going to counter bullying with substance and with an argument that you got to make the government work. 
And that, in addition to turnout that her well-known, very liberal policies would attract, you could actually see a turnout election of historic proportions this time. Mm. Yeah, just to sort of add to that, I think it's not right to think of this as a sort of ideological issue. I know I sort of framed it in those terms, but Trump is moving to the extreme, not really ideologically. He's doing it in terms of his sort of rhetoric and his approach and his demonization of the other side. It doesn't matter whether the Democrats nominate a Warren or a Biden as to whether they can appeal to the center. It matters the tone that they take. It matters whether they decide to play Trumpian politics or not. And I think that that's what Corey is getting at, is that what Warren is going to attempt to do is hit back at the president, but also be sort of welcoming enough, not in her ideology necessarily, but just in her tone and in her politics to an American center. And that's how she's going to try to both motivate her base with the policies and motivate the center with her attitude. And actually, I think the role model for this is the Speaker of the House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi, Right. right? I've disagreed with Nancy Pelosi's policies my entire life. I'm full of admiration for the way she is using the authorities of the Speaker of the House and her personal comportment in dealing with the president to shore up the norms of democratic behavior in the United States and to show what a successful counter to the president's approach looks like. Mm. And coming back to the Brexit parallel, I think one of the striking things from here is the way in which the American attitude to Brexit has played into this whole debate here in the UK. So Obama's attempted intervention, prompted, I think, by David Cameron during the referendum, which now, in retrospect, backfired when he famously said the UK would be at the back of the queue for a trade agreement. But then Trump himself, the first foreigner he sees uh, in Trump Tower is Nigel Farage. He's called Boris Johnson rather bafflingly. I think he called him Britain Brexit. Britain uh, Trump. Britain, Britain Trump, Trump. Britain Trump. I beg your pardon. Yeah, <laughs> Same exactly. lack of grammar, but a yeah. different <laughs> um, And so why, Jeremy, do you think that Trump and the people around him are so welcoming of Brexit? What do they see in it? You know, I'm not sure. I think that they see the same sort of populist, anti-elite movement that propelled them into power. And Steve Bannon particularly, but a lot of the people around Trump have been very focused for a while on this sort of notion of a nationalist international with, without any sense of uh, contradiction. Uh, they are uh, – they really feel as if there is a sort of people against the elite movement across the world or at least across the Western democracies, which they have the opportunity to sort of lead and direct – And Trump has instinctively jumped on that. He just sees these people as having the same attitudes. And, you know, you and I might say, well, actually, there's a lot of different specificities involved in the various contexts, even between the UK and the US. But I think they reduce it to this very simple notion that there is this populist revolt against old elites and that they can be part of it. And Corey, it's a Big reversal in American foreign policy, isn't it? Because, I mean, ever since the beginning of the European Union, America's broadly been behind European integration. And here you have the Trump administration saying repeatedly, essentially, they're quite hostile to it and certainly support the breakup of the EU in the form of Britain leaving. Yeah, I agree with that. I think in addition to what Jeremy said, I think they're fundamentally hostile to institutionalization of political processes and to multilateral cooperation. They have a very transactional approach to foreign policy, and it's 
driving up the cost of everything the United States wants to do in the world because we tend to get the benefit of the doubt from friends and adversaries. And we also tend to get carryover advantages in our relationships with others because of our values, because of the history of support for cooperation. And the Trump administration is squandering that legacy really fast. Yeah. And they don't believe fundamentally that alliances leverage American power. They see it as a drain on American power. That's exactly right. Rather than understanding that if you want to manage a rising China, the best way to have the economies of scale and the databases of scale and the military forces of scale is to reinforce America's alliance relationships. Look, I mean, I agree with all of that. It's just that... um and I suppose it does enable the president's Brexit policy, but it's not really what the president's Brexit policy is about because he doesn't really consider those things in those terms. I mean, his Brexit policy is about his sort of innate sense that Boris Johnson and that the the sort of revolt against the EU and the revolt against Brussels elites is consistent with his worldview – it doesn't take away anything from what Corey said, but I think we have to be very careful when we're talking about President Trump to be creating a worldview around him that is actually coherent. I um, cede you the point that <laughs> yeah. he's not carefully analyzing any of these issues, but the consequences are nonetheless yeah, substantial. Sure. What about the implications for the international order generally? Because obviously the United States has been fundamental to it since the end of the Second World War and the UK as well, you know, as a second victor in the war, it's been a big... architect. And an architect of the the system and a big sponsor of the idea of the liberal international order. If both the members of this sort of Anglo-American approach to the world who helped to shape it and create it are defecting simultaneously from it, what does that mean for us? It means the order will be badly frayed. Everybody's margin for error will get narrower. The U.S. and the U.K., as two of the strongest and most vibrant countries, will be late to feel the effects of it. But there's a long lag time to correct that. And actually, a couple of years ago, you wrote about this really wonderfully, about the challenge for the middle powers to have to step forward and fill the gap that American leadership, America's failures of leadership are leaving. And what we are seeing now is a real-time test in whether France, Germany, Australia, Japan, South Korea, Canada can actually bear the weight of that responsibility. I think there are some good early indications, Canada, Mexico, South Korea, Japan, and Australia bringing the Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership into effect. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of reasons to be worried that without a poll to organize around that the middle powers won't step forward. Yeah, I mean, Jeremy, you spend a lot of time working with the European middle powers at the ECFR. What's your sense? I mean, what happens to the world system if the key power pulls out (laughs) alongside its buddy? Yeah, well, first of all, I didn't know that we had to read your columns for this. (laughs) uh, (laughs) Remember, not only read, but remember, that's the really impressive part. Yeah. So I feel a little bit bad about that, but I'll try somehow to answer that question without the benefit of that. I do think that the, you know, obviously the U.S. retreating from its sort of international responsibilities is a problem for a global order. It's the single most powerful country. I do think that 
we were already having this problem and we were always going to have this problem. The United States was increasingly trying to extract its own benefit from the international order, even under Obama. It was doing it much more slowly and responsibly. But the ways in which you describe the international order in which the United States, with a little bit of help from the UK and a few other Europeans and the Japanese were holding it up, was not sustainable in the long run anyway. And here, the sort of cold water that Trump has thrown on the middle powers might have been helpful because they were certainly not responding to a trend that I already saw and I think a lot of other people already saw before Trump came into power. I would obviously prefer that this process moved in a more evolutionary way, as I think it was under Obama, than the sort of revolutionary way that it has happened under Trump, which creates its own disturbances. But ultimately, we have needed for quite some time a more balanced global order in which not only the middle powers that you described can take the types of responsibilities that Corey talked about, but also that gives greater room for powers that we don't like, who are, you know, a pain in the ass and do things that are very bad, but we don't have the capacity without a shared sense of order to contain the conflict with them. And of course, primarily referring to Russia and China, but even countries like Brazil and Turkey and India. And I think that it is a little bit good that people are realizing that this needs to be done. I think we have seen, as Corey mentioned, some activity in this regard from countries like Japan and Mexico and France even more, I suppose. And, and that's also good. But it's still been a little bit disappointing, I think, at how much people are sort of pining for the impossible return of the American hegemon, particularly in Europe. That's true in pretty much every country in Europe except France. And there's this sort of hope that you hear, you know, I mean, they're a little bit, they're very worried that Trump will be really reelected, but the hope is that if he's not, that Joe Biden will ride them back to a glorious past, which is frankly never going to return. Well, that's a subject for another podcast, a good title, The Impossible Return of the American Hegemon. But, <laughs> but let me end actually by just asking you, like all conversations in London, as you probably realise now, come back to Brexit eventually. So let's end by talking about Brexit. I'm hoping that as outsiders, you'll be able to make sense of it for me because, you know, you get lost in it here. <laughs> Jeremy, what's going to happen? Oh, gee, I don't think I can help you with that, <laughs> Gideon. I guess I believe in my heart of hearts that it will be somewhat less disruptive than we worry about that the UK is going to leave uh, the EU, that it will probably do so with some sort of cobbled together deal, and that that will be bad for the UK and bad for the EU, but not so fundamentally disruptive that we'll all be fighting each other in the supermarket aisles for toilet paper. But I have to admit, honestly, I've been surprised all the way through this process, and I'll probably be surprised again. Kari, what do you think? I, too, think that the Johnson government will successfully trigger the withdrawal on October 31st, probably with great difficulty in Ireland and possibly even precipitating the breakup of the union. Well, that's a nice cheery thought to, to end on. So that's another future podcast, the breakup of the United Kingdom. But for now, we'll, we'll have to leave it. So thank you both very much. Thanks to Corrie Shackey and to Jeremy Shapiro. That's it for this week. Until next week, goodbye. Thank you. That's all for this week. Next week's show comes from New York, where I'll be talking to Nadia Shadlow, who served in the Trump White House, where she wrote the president's national security strategy. She'll explain why the Trump administration hardened US policy towards China and why she thinks that policy change will persist, whatever happens to the president himself. I hope you'll join me then. If you don't already subscribe to the show, you can do so in any podcast app, 
Just follow the link in our show notes. Until next week, goodbye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.